having new tolls put up and collected by Verizon and AT&T and Comcast and these giants in the middle of the network will benefit those giant companies, but will hurt all the rest of us. Hello there. You're listening to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. This is Lisa Gonzalez. If you're listening to our podcast, you're probably pretty savvy about the network neutrality debate. As you know, the conversation is stirring about the right of ISPs to charge more for what's been labeled a fast lane. At muninetworks.org, we refer to the practice as paid prioritization. This week, Chris interviews Free Press Policy Director Matt Wood. The Free Press is one of the organizations dedicated to educating the general public and helping them participate in developing Internet policy. Innovations in technology are now forcing us to re-examine telecommunications policy. Media consolidation and their powerful lobbying machines drown out the voice of consumers. Matt helps explain the idea behind the possibility of Title II classification, the FCC's roles in the open internet, and the consequences we can expect from paid prioritization. Here are Chris and Matt. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and today I'm speaking with Matt Wood with the Free Press. Matt is the policy director of this D.C.-based organization, which has been critical to safeguarding the open Internet. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. You know, actually, I just called you D.C.-based, and you got a lot of people in Massachusetts. You're, you're all over the place. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, Free Press? Sure, yeah. We're all over, all over the place physically, but hopefully not with our ideas. Um, we are both inside and outside the Beltway, uh, Northampton, Massachusetts, and a few other people working in other places, too, and then with an office here in Washington. And we basically try to bring real people's voices into these debates about communications policy uh, that happen here in Washington too often just between big companies and, and maybe some other large stakeholders. And we see our role as promoting the public interest and giving people a voice in these conversations, too. So today we're going to talk about uh, network neutrality and some of the policy around it. I I would expect that listeners would would have an understanding of it, but we might simplify it as the idea that we should determine what we do with our internet connections rather than the big companies um, like Comcast and the AT&T and the like. Um, but in particular, we're going to dive right in, and I want to ask you a little bit about the history. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about reclassification. What are these different classifications? The FCC first started considering these issues back in the 50s and 60s um, when companies like IBM and lots of other big and small uh, telephone system users started to send data over telephone wires. And so the FCC had to ask itself, well, how do we treat these new data services? Are are these the same thing as a telephone service, or are they more like the voice call in the sense that, you know, the telephone wire is one thing, but what you and I say to each other over that wire is different and, more to the point, is unregulated by the FCC. Uh, The FCC said there is such a thing as a basic service, a, a telephone service, a telecom service. Today, we would say a broadband service. And while there is some relation between the two, that basic telecom service, that ability to send your information from point A to point B, is different from the information itself. Um, So again, you know, the phone line might be regulated, but what we say on that phone line is certainly not regulated by the FCC. Congress took this issue up in 1996, which was the last time they did a really major overhaul to the nation's communications laws. And they basically 
took on that same FCC decision and the same divisions they'd made at the at the agency, um, but they changed the terminology slightly. So when we, today we talk about the classification of broadband, uh, we here at Free Press and lots of other groups and, and lots of people around the country think that broadband should be classified as what the law today calls a telecommunications service, you know, a, a service that gives you the ability to send information of your choosing to whomever else you, whomever else you want to send it to on that network. The alternative and the place where the FCC has kind of tripped itself up over the last decade and a half now is something called an information service, which again is, you know, as I said, not that new of a concept. It's basically anything that you send over those wires um, or over those wireless airwaves. Um, and uh, something like a website or an email program or an app that you use, all of those things would properly be considered information services. It's something that uses the broadband network but is not the same thing as the broadband network. The FCC, in the name of deregulation, tried to basically say, well, we have continued authority over broadband, but we're going to put it into that same information services category. And that's where they've lost in court a few times where judges have, uh, I would say, correctly pointed out that the FCC can't really have it both ways. You can't say that broadband is both the same thing as a website or the same thing as an email program for all intents and purposes under the law, and yet also still subject to FCC jurisdiction and to prohibitions on things like blocking or discriminating against certain kinds of traffic. So that's where we stand. Would it be true to say that certain kinds of internet access, certain kinds of broadband were Title II and other ones weren't, and we slowly yeah. moved to a stage in which now none of them really are? Yeah, that's exactly right, or at least very few of them are. What the FCC did at first was, in the dial-up era, we weren't really talking about broadband yet, obviously. So you know, when people had AOL or any, any number of other services to get on the internet, um, you were quite literally making a phone call to a separate internet service provider. And so in that case, the internet service provider was an information service, but that line that connected you to them was still a telecom service. As things evolved and the telephone companies themselves started offering DSL services, those were originally classified as telecom services, um, meaning that, you know, yes, it gets you online, but there is this basic transmission component, we might say, this kind of basic service that, that carries your information uh, from one point to another online. And the phone companies offered DSL services as telecom services all the way up till 2005, um, where the FCC started making this distinction and started down this deregulatory path. And when I say that, it's, it's not that deregulation is in and of itself a bad thing. It's just that we feel like this was the wrong approach for this particular question. Um, they started down this deregulatory path with cable modem service. So, you know, the phone companies were historically telecom providers, obviously, and the cable companies were getting into this voice business and into this data business or internet connectivity business. And the FCC, when it first looked at the question of how to treat cable broadband, decided to say it's, it's not a telecom service, it's an information service, and to put it into this category where it still sits today and it, which is the reason that the commission has twice now lost in federal court when people have sued them over their net neutrality rules. Are there good technical reasons not to change it back to having Internet access as a telecom service? Or is this strictly a matter of the powerful lobbying and the, the, the sort of the presence of these big companies in Washington, D.C.? 
Yeah, I think certainly more of the latter and the lobbying and the political and propagandizing campaigns that have gone on. I mean, from a technical standpoint, I'm not an engineer and shouldn't pretend to be one. But what the FCC did in 2002, which was when they were looking at this question of how to treat cable broadband, was to say these services are inextricably intertwined, that there's really no way to separate out the transmission function that just sends your information around without changing it from the information services that they layer on top of that. And really the model then was, it was closer to the dial-up era than it is to today in some ways. You know, when you got, uh, I'll just use Comcast since I happen to be a Comcast customer. Who isn't? Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. And soon who, who won't be? Even more people. But, you know, so I get from Comcast not only my connectivity, but I also get web browsing capabilities. I also get an email address and I get the ability to you know, do all sorts of things online that Comcast is bundling together with their telecom service. And it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court didn't say, yes, you're right, FCC. That's the way to think about it. They just said this is your in, in your discretion that the FCC was right to say that there was really no logical way to look at this and kind of divide up those different services that Comcast or Verizon or AT&T might provide to you. However true that was in 2002, it's certainly not true today for almost anybody. You know, very few people use the email address that comes along with their broadband provider, um, with their broadband provider's connection. Or if they do, they probably use that. But they also use a Gmail address or some sort of work address that they get um, through their place of business or through their university. So you know, the notion that somehow the information riding on top of the wire is the same thing as the wire may have been a little bit more defensible back in 2002, even though we think it was wrong at the time and said so at the time. A lot of public interest advocates who were working on this even back then. Um, but whatever the truth of it was then, I think it's pretty clearly not the case today as broadband technology and broadband use has continued to evolve. Somewhere in between the technical and the, and the political, there are you know legal questions. Well, can the FCC change its mind after making a decision like this? Or is there a sufficient justification for them to change their mind? And we would say, yeah, in both cases, they, they can definitely change their mind as the facts change, and they have the legal ability to do that. But you know, like anything that happens not only in D.C., but in this country, um, there will probably be a lawsuit. There will inevitably be, inevitably be lawsuits if the FCC goes down this path. We just think that you know, they should be sued for doing the right thing for a change rather than for continuing to compromise and yet losing in court even as they compromise and give away a lot of their authority. So can I sum up the current situation as uh, FCC Chairman Wheeler saying net neutrality is a good thing and we need to preserve it and I can do that without reclassifying and millions of people submitting comments saying no you can't the courts have told you twice you can't you have to reclassify if you want to preserve network neutrality. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, what he's saying is, I agree that net neutrality is important, that ISPs shouldn't be blocking or discriminating against traffic or slowing down or speeding up certain kinds of content. And what he's also saying is, and I will protect you from that happening using this compromised legal approach. And that's exactly what the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals told him in January he couldn't do. What they said was, if the FCC continues to proceed without treating broadband as a telecom service once again, Again, let's remember they could do that, but they, if they decide not to do that at the FCC, then they have to allow ISPs substantial room for individualized bargaining and discrimination. 
basically saying, you know, if it's not a common carrier service, if it's not something that has to be made available to everybody on roughly the same terms, then you have to let companies like Comcast charge a different rate to Netflix than they charge to Amazon or charge a different rate to some video sites than they charge to others or you slice and dice it however you want. That that is basically the only way to avoid getting struck down again for, you know, saying that broadband is not a telecom service, and yet we're going to apply telecom obligations to it. So let's fast forward a little bit to this future where we have the FCC having already decided to reclassify, and uh, broadband is once again a Title II service. In that world, there still can be paid prioritization, right? I think this is this is a point that we're seeing some um, make right now, including Earl Comstock, uh, who basically points out that, um, you know, you can still have differentiation with a common carrier, but it's just that the FCC would have more tools. Is that, I mean, basically, I guess the question to you is, if we get Title II reclassification, does that automatically mean network neutrality is saved? I wouldn't necessarily agree with the notion that they have to allow, quote, paid prioritization. And here's what I mean by that. So so Title II is the place where the telecom regulations live in the statute. And if the FCC puts broadband back under Title II of the Communications Act and treats it as a common carrier, it will have the power to prevent what the law calls unreasonable discrimination or unjust and unreasonable discrimination. That's right there in the statute. That doesn't mean that every kind of differentiation I think that's a good word to differentiate from discrimination, you know, that every different kind of service plan would be somehow illegal. It's not to say that, you know, everybody has to get the same speed at the same price because I can buy from my ISP 10 megabits per second downstream and you can buy 20. And that's fine because it's not discriminating between different sources. It's not saying, you know, Matt gets 10 because we don't like his content, but Chris gets 20 because he's got a special deal with us. It's just paying for pure capacity for transmission speed. What the FCC could do while allowing certain kinds of reasonable discrimination and differentiation like that is they could say, well, paid prioritization where you know one company pays to be sped up to the exclusion of other companies and to kind of knock other people out of that fast lane. They could say that is per se, you know, automatically unreasonable discrimination. It gives the FCC the power to not only say, well, as Tom Wheeler is saying now, when we see a bad practice, we'll ban it. It actually gives the FCC the power to set rules that say, here are the bad practices that we're not going to allow. And oh, by the way, it actually gives them the authority to ban those things and to basically keep the burden of proof on the broadband provider who, if they want to make some kind of exception to that, and say, well, here's an issue. Here's an instance where paid prioritization would be okay, or or not paid even, but prioritization, like for 911 calls, for example. That's an that's an example that's often thrown out there. Then sure, you know that could be okay, but it wouldn't mean that the default rule was any time the ISP negotiates for extra extra money coming from somebody like Amazon or Netflix, that that would sort of have to be okay and that the FCC can only step in when there was some kind of egregious abuse or anti-competitive behavior. So if you and I created separate streaming services that were kind of similar, but we both went into business uh, separately, and you got this incredible deal through Comcast, and I had to pay Comcast a ton of money to get a similar deal. Under Title II, the FCC could have rules that basically said, no, you just can't do that. 
Whereas right. under the current approach, this approach that Chairman Wheeler has outlined, which is a lot of us uh, very concerned, under that approach, I, I as, the, as the inconvenienced party, could then file a complaint to the FCC and maybe spend a year or several years going through the legal process and maybe ultimately have that changed. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah, I think that's exactly right, that even if this test could stand up in court, and we fear that it couldn't, um, that it would be basically unworkable or not really able to protect companies in that exact situation or forget companies, you know, nonprofits and individual users as well. Um, because what you'd have to prove is that the deal that they cut with you was commercially unreasonable. And again, you know, legal words aren't magic words, but they do have different meanings. To, to say something is unreasonable discrimination or unjust, whether, whether you know, in the dictionary it would mean this or not, on the law books, it, it means the FCC has more power to determine in advance what is unreasonable. This commercially reasonable standard is just a much lower bar for the ISPs to meet and a higher bar for anybody who wants to challenge them to get over if, in fact, this is what we get at the end of this process. And so, you know, that's kind of the, that is the hallmark of what the court allowed the FCC to do using the compromised approach. If you want to stick with this, you're going to have to let ISPs make individual deals. And, you know, who's to say whether or not something is commercially reasonable or unreasonable? It could be perfectly commercially reasonable for the ISP to want to make more money. That, that's what we're concerned about, that it will be, as you just said, a lengthy process to test that and probably no protection even at the end of that lengthy process because it's such a high bar for small internet companies in particular to meet um, first to mount the challenge and have enough money to survive that and then to win on it at the end even if they can get all the way through the process. Great. Well, thank you for helping us to, to really better understand this, this complicated issue that's quite important for the future of our ability to communicate. Yeah, it certainly is. And it, it speaks to really our entire communications future, if you want to call it that, where, you know, we're asking questions about whether the FCC has any ability to protect broadband users or if it's basically all left now to the biggest companies to set all of the terms and conditions for our Internet connectivity. And that's why we think it's so important. And that's actually one of the things that I, I often think about is that, you know, the future of the Internet could look like radio, where it's mostly dominated by a bunch of really crappy stations that are all owned by a few companies, something that free press has been very active in opposing. Um, or, you know, it could be a future in which we still have many different companies able to innovate and do lots of interesting things. But I often think of that radio dial when I think of the, the future of the Internet that I don't want to see. Yeah, and right, the Internet has been a far more level playing field. It's kind of like each new technology that comes along starts out much more open to everybody on a pretty level playing field as broadcasting was a century ago. And then when the FCC steps in, it can either maintain that open character and equal character for everybody, or it can allow or even require um, a few speakers to have louder voices, and that's kind of what happened with radio, and we've seen the consolidation happen there and in TV. As you said, that's exactly the, the result we don't want to have on the Internet, where right now, you know, once you're online, you gotta you got to pay to get there, but once you're on the Internet, everybody else can reach you on pretty much equal terms. And having new tolls put up and collected by Verizon and AT&T and Comcast and these giants in the middle of the network will benefit those giant companies, but will hurt all the rest of us. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Matt. Thanks, Chris. Freepress.net is where you can learn how to get involved and share your opinion with decision makers. 
We're following the network neutrality debate at muninetworks.org. And in addition to that tag, you can follow the paid prioritization tag for specifics resources on the fast lane. Send us your ideas for the show. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at communitynets. This show was released on June 3rd, 2014. We would like to thank Valley Lodge for their song, Sweet Elizabeth, licensed using Creative Commons. <laughs>